0: Hello, and welcome to the History of Internal Communication podcast. My name is Joe Chick, and I'm a research fellow at the Brunel Business School. In this podcast series, I'm going to be exploring the history of a profession that's often assumed to be a recent innovation, but which actually has its roots in the late 19th century. My work is part of a project funded by the Economic and Social Research Council called An Institutional History of Internal Communication in the United Kingdom. For this first episode, I'm going to be joined by the two people who came up with this project, Michael Heller from Brunel University London and Mick Rowlandson from Exeter University. They will be talking to me today about how they came up with the project, what questions they hope we can answer through our research and, most importantly, how they hope it will contribute to the internal comms profession itself.
1: The first question that I suppose I want to ask you then is how did this project originate?
2: Okay. Uh, well, I'll I'll, I'll start on that and then I'll hand over to Mick. Um, it it actually goes way back. It goes right back to um I think nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. So it's it's old. Um it's when I started my PhD. So my, my PhD was um on a, a history of clerical workers, history of clerks. Uh and I think I started the I started it in 1998. and I think I started the archival research in nineteen ninety nine. And um I I, I I wanted to look at their work life, their experience of work. So I started going to archives. So I went, for example, to the Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, um and when I went in for Nat West, and when I went in, the first thing they gave me were company magazines. And I said, Yes, you'll find loads about clerks in these. That was the first thing they gave me. And I had all of these magazines. And they were right. There was loads of stuff about clerks. And I I and then I went to the Prudential and they did exactly the same thing. They said, oh, here's the magazines, right? And um, everywhere I went, I was always being given these magazines. And I, I obviously, I mean, I, I I you know, originally I wasn't a business historian, I was a social historian, but I found these magazines incredible. And the more I started researching Clark's over time, the the more I realized that the these sources were not just they weren't just sources, they weren't a means to research clerks, but they they were they were an object of researching themselves if that makes sense that the, the there was something fascinating about these magazines that you know and then I became interested in 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 the actual magazines um, and then I joined Queen Mary um, in 2005 when Mick was the head of the school and um, we actually and that was when Mick was the um, well he just founded management and organizational history and in 2008 we did a special issue uh on company magazine so that's how it starts mick do you want to
3: yeah um my my experience was similar so i did uh, a long long time ago my phd was on history of cadbury and as with michael when i first went to the archive one of the first things that the archivist showed me was the Bourneville Works magazine, which I think started in about 1905, around about the same time as Cadbury's Dairy Milk, and and ran in the same format till the late 1960s. And it was a great resource. And um, I interviewed the manager of Cadbury World once, and he said that Cadbury World wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the company magazine. Uh, it was such a tremendous resource for, for them. I don't know if that's true, but... Uh, yeah, uh, so I was always intrigued by the magazine, and like Michael, I thought, well, maybe we should study—not just use the magazine to study the company, but study the magazine itself as a phenomenon. Um, and and gradually that um, built up because we realised we had a joint interest. Uh, yeah, and it's been, um, and we've had some funding before from Leverhulme. Yeah. Uh, a small-scale study of company magazines, so we thought we'd expand it not just to magazines but to other forms of communication because magazines are, um, you know, not not the force that they once were. Obviously, there's so many other um, forms of communication in organisations.
2: Yeah, and that, that that's right. Um, and, you know, it has been a... Um, it's been an interesting journey. Um, so, you know, we did the there 's been these real good milestones you know we got we got this the special issue and i i i think that was only the third ever um volume of you know it was only in its third year m o h then and it was an it was it was yeah. a fun it really what it was a fun probably one of the first special issues in m o h and it was it was it was really really good we had really good papers um covering interestingly i thought oh it would just be the u k but we actually had a couple of really good papers also from the states from america so it was a you know it was a bit more global uh and they looked at several areas there was, there was a really interesting paper for example um by mike esbester uh you, using a kind of foucauldian approach of the the magazine as, as a kind of panopticon of, of discipline and so that really for me kind of opened my eyes up to the ideas that you know these magazines had such an internal communications and stuff really had massive potential you know you could study lots of i mean a lot a lot of this obviously goes back to um what's it called in organization studies or theory i think it's cco communication constitutes organizations so there is a strand in organizational theory which says you know it's kind of linked i imagine to kind of linguistic turn idea that organizations are in themselves simply created through communication without the communication there is no you know and Mick and I developed this in a paper we wrote so in 2014 I think we got funding from um, Leverhulme we got a small grant Mm -hmm. very small grant only £7,800 from um, British Academy Leverhulme but we did a lot with that grant we got two papers published we went to the Academy of Management with it uh, we also got a book chapter in routledge there was a, um um a routledge um brilliant volume on the history of the magazine and we were asked to contribute a chapter on um um company magazines um so the, the, and anyway we we wrote a paper which we're using in this um project uh, where we developed the idea uh using gregory anderson of imagine anderson. yeah Sorry, Benedict, not Greg. Gregory Anderson's a historian. Benedict yeah, Anderson. Yeah, Benedict Anderson. Gregory Anderson's a historian of clerical workers. Benedict Anderson, <laughs> uh, he actually is. He's so there is another Anderson who's a historian. Mm. Benedict Anderson wrote, you know, the imagined communities. And we, we came up with this concept of um, imagined corporate communities. So that feeds into that CCO that it was these imagined communities, which were through communication, through magazines and other forms, were kind of creating the the organisation.
1: And I suppose one thing that the people who are uh, a bit new to this topic might notice with the title is the uh, word institutional might be the one that surprises them because they've described it as an institutional history of internal communication. So uh, what made you decide to, what do you mean, I suppose, by an institutional approach and what made you decide to take that particular approach with this project?
2: Yeah, that's really good. Mick, do you want to, because Mick gave a really good presentation um, just before Christmas well, to yeah, research group. Um
3: we in order to get research funding uh, you you need a sort of theoretical perspective obviously you could write a freelance book about company ma- magazines um without any reference to theory but there's an increasing expectation that research should make some theoretical contribution uh, and institutionalism or new institutionalism is a very um, dominant theoretical perspective in business school research and has been taken up in uh, relation to historical research. Uh, And the idea of um, different forms of communication as being an institution is appealing to us. And what's interesting is that there's a, a profession that supports internal communication Um, And it has various professional bodies, and these bodies disseminate ideas about the best way to communicate in organisations. You know, they have their own communication for members. Um, So we we thought that we could make a contribution to institutional theory because it emphasises the importance of communication. But mostly the kind of communication that people are thinking about would be email or conversation rather than um they're not exactly formal but um should we say cultural communication that goes on in organizations magazines for the first half of the 20th century would be the dominant way but also now we have um you know i, th- I think most people would have experienced these online um discussions from their head of department or head of the university these are a form of an institutionalized form of communication.
2: Yeah, thank you. And, you know, going on from that, um, I mean, for me, and it, and it really, I mean, because I, I think with institutional theory, you've got um, kind of two approaches. There are several ways you can see this. Um, and this goes back to the older institutionalism, because this is both old and new institutions, I think we we were trying to combine, is, you know, Selznick's, classic um definition of, of, of what is it to infuse with value is that right institutionalization yeah. is institutionalization is the infusion of value within so what what beyond this the
3: functional necessity beyond so the functional the, yeah you know the, the magazine doesn't just exist yes or the the um the the, the talks by your vice chancellor or head of your organization um podcast etc they don't exist <laughs> just as a functional means of communicating they they take on a, a, a meaning and um so if they stop doing them you lose that meaning you don't just lose the functional means of communication you lose the meanings attached to it
1: That's
3: and, really and, interesting. And,
2: yeah I, I think and that's absolutely fundamental so that's what makes this an institutional history and not simply an organizational history because we could have done that we could have written a history of internal comms and that history would have been an interesting history and it would have started off in the 1880s where you would have seen the emergence of these you would have seen the emergence of the large scale organization and the challenges that that organization faced and then we would have built a narrative which would have said and then organizations created magazines in order to create communication within because there was a fear of anime, of 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 the organization uh, kind of breaking up you know uh, and then by the 1920s, these magazines, which appeared in in only a handful, particularly those that were developing industrial welfare, like Round Trees or like Cadbury, that by the 1920s and 30s that that had they emerged, they'd spread to organize the large scale organisations. Then 1949, you have the creation of the. They professionalised the British Association of Industrial Editors. And then in the 50s and 60s, but then at some point in the 60s, because of mass strikes, you know, uh, industrial strife, magazines kind of collapse uh, and a new form of communication comes in, which we call internal communication, which we have today. That that would have been a, a, a good history, but it would have been, I don't think that history would have told you the whole story because the problem with that narrative, it, mm-hmm. it, it would have seen magazines as, as fundamentally functional phenomenon and and as we say an institutional approach says no that these magazines we're not denying that magazines do not have an economic or functional purpose but we're saying they're much more than that and that and that's what institutionalism says it says you have to look at organizations not just as economic phenomena but also as social cultural phenomena and that that these these magazines and later on other forms briefing groups in the 1960s, what today what we call teams meetings so what happens in the 60s and 70s is a new form of communication comes into organizations and of course that ties in with the emergence of the flattening of the organization um uh, the um i i don't know um the introduction of te- of teams within organizations or they become more prevalent anybody you know when you teach org theory you always teach or org studies you teach team working it, it's no coincidence that these briefing groups kind of come in around about the late 60s 70s uh, the magazine's still there but what we see now is it's almost in institutional theory we would call this de-institutionalization and reinstitutionalization. the magazine is the dominant form of internal commerce is deinstitutionalized and it's reinstitutionalized by a, a new form of communication. Um the other thing of course which for me also so that's one approach which is fundamental. I mean and for me it's interesting I mean because like I say I actually um didn't start off as a business organizational historian. I was I was a social historian and one his, historian who's always had a big influence on me is um Ross McKibben who is an incredible um socio Historian, he, he wrote an amazing book um, called Class and Class Cultures, and before that, and he wrote, um, I forget, it was a collection of essays, and in that he wrote about work in 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 the interwar period, in the twenties, but not actually, work from the eighteen eighties up to the nineteen sixties. And one thing he emphasized, and I, and I that always caught my attention, that if we study work, we have to go beyond the merely economic. That workers would often see work as not just an economic center but also a social center you know there would be social clubs they would um they would meet friends there and it's interesting when i was talking about the project I, i i forgot who it was but i spoke to one person and she used to live in staffordshire where that that used to be where general electric was in stafford there's huge general electric plant, there. and she grew up there and she was saying yeah she said i remember i didn't just grow up in stafford i grew up in general electric there was you know there was a whole community around that um and i think that for me has always been my approach to you know studying the history of business and organizations mm-hmm. that we cannot simply study it purely from a functional or economic perspective that we have to also and that so when I came across institutional theory I thought yes this is the way we can it it, it was exactly what I wanted to use the, the other thing by the way very quickly is institutionalization this is also obviously an institution is an ingrained or embedded social structure which is just taken for granted you know it, it structures you know, our reality, what we do, it regulates, it creates the rules of the games. One thing we're looking at is how, look, in 1880, if you'd gone to an organisation, you wouldn't have said, where is your company magazine? You wouldn't have expected it. And if if there had been one, you would have said, what's this? Whereas by 1920, 1930, it's becoming institutionalised. It's becoming expected. (laughs) And not only is that happening... But the way it's being done, this is what's called institutional isomorphism. It's becoming the same. So magazines suddenly start looking the same everywhere you go. yeah. And the professionalization, we that's what we're going to be looking at. We're going to be looking at how the professionalization, the institutions of internal communication, how they exist alongside the organizations that use that communication. So that institutional approach will structure and embed the, the way we do this history
1: and what are the key questions then that you think your institutional approach will be able to help uh with answering
2: i think mick mick mick, mick actually designed mm-hmm. most of the questions for the for the research project so well i kind of came up the mick mick made them clever
3: oh. well the first question is how to write a, a history like this so we you know we've, we've worked and michael's just uh got a paper accepted to be published in a journal, a very good journal called Organisation Studies about how to do historical research in a business school context in organisation studies. So the, f- the first question is, is is how to write it um, and how did these different forms of communication become institutionalised? What were the roles of the professional bodies? Um, but also then what are the discourse is what are the discussions that take place within these different kinds of communication you know they're not random what they put in magazines or what they discuss in briefing groups they start to converge uh, so we can analyze what what's the content Um, how did they imagine organization members as being part of a community of the organization and then An important question, because we really, one of the things we're really interested in are the professions associated with internal communication. Um, There are the professional bodies of internal communication itself, but also other interested bodies of marketing, public relations, human resource management. Um, And how did they play a role in professionalising the content of magazines? Um, and a particular interest that we have this derives from institutional theory is a term that people use of rhetorical history how in the content of lots of internal communication there's lots of historical references people refer to the history of their organization so how do they use the history of their organization how does that help organizations make their organization members feel part of the organization and how can the profession professions who are involved in internal communication how can they use history to try to legitimate their role and that's where i think we hope to make a contribution to those professions by saying this is your history i think that for many of them it would be a revelation that their profession is older than they think yeah and uh many of the members of the profession have said that to us so we're hoping First of all, to start with a sort of abstract question of how to write a history and then finishing on a very concrete question of how can we help the profession to legitimate its role in uh, internal communication?
2: Yeah. And and uh, thank you, Mick. And yeah, so it, it it's you know, we've got these six questions and um, they kind of start off from, I imagine, what you could call the historiographical Uh, and then it kind of gets into the the meat of this history, this institutional history. And then we kind of go off to rhetorical history because rhetorical history is our second big theory. You know, we've got institutional, but as Mick said, rhetorical history has actually grown out of institutional theory, you know, so they're they're kind of linked with each other. Um, And as I've said, you know, because, you know, we've been studying these magazines and other forms of internal communications for years. You know, um, I think we've got five publications already on, on, on this, you know, we've got, we've got publications in business history, British Journal of, of of Management, Rutledge. So, you know, we, we've, you know, management organization history. Um, and one of the things we've kind of noticed a lot is there's a lot of rhetorical history. So rhetorical history for those uh, viewers and listeners who don't know what that is, that that is basically um it it shouldn't be seen as history rhetorical history is not the same as what we we would imagine history to be these are historical narratives which organizations create of themselves yeah Um, We see rhetorical, and they're very much, they're more concerned with the present than the past. They're often used as ways to legitimize the organization, to create organizational identification. Uh, They're used for both internal audiences and external audiences. If you go on a website, if you go on a website of any organization, of Google, of Rolls-Royce, of whatever, you will find a rhetorical history. It'll be about us, our history. And of course, if you think of organizations that really use their history. Um, you know, what John Barmer, um, Professor Barmer has called kind of heritage, corporate heritage organization. So organisations like Cadbury, you know, the Royal Mail, uh, the London Underground, they really use their history as, as a means of creating their identity, their branding, and, and so, their culture. And so that's what we mean by rhetorical history. These rhetorical histories are not created by historians. They, they tend to be created by uh, managers, communication people public relations branding people that they'll create them and one thing we have seen and obviously you know the development of rhetorical history by roy Suderby and you know bill foster that really helped clarify this for us we've noticed it already is there is a lot of the content of the magazines and of other forms of you know intranets for example is history you, you'll see it all the time there'll be Essays about our history, remembering the past, and of course, where it really comes up heavily is is and Mick's written about this, you know, years ago, nineteen ninety three, Mick and John Hasselhoff, uh, the history of the history of Cadbury's. You you often see them coming up in centenaries, you know, when it's the so it, you know John Lewis when it was their fiftieth or hundred. Does it the, the whole magazine will just be about our history, yeah? And these are rhetorical histories. They, they, they are a major form of the content of 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 these. So I think, you know, having such a big grant where we're going to look at so many, it's going to be a very exciting uh, opportunity to expand on, not just institute. So, you know, what we're trying to do is several things here. We're, we're trying to create a history of internal comms in it. So not, this has not been written, but we're also trying in the process to develop our understanding of historical institutionalism and, 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 and of rhetorical history.
1: Yeah. And you've talked there quite a lot about how internal communications is relevant to rhetorical history. And then on the institutional theory side of things, what kind of unique role do you think that uh, internal comms will be able to play in uh, adding to that field of study?
2: Oh, I, I think a lot. I, I, I think a lot. I mean, first of all, I'd, I'd just like to go back to what Mick was saying. And this is really interesting about the rhetorical history of of. of internal communication and when we're talking about internal communication we we need to look at this in two ways by the way we need to look at it as as a professional practice yeah the the profession of internal communication and but then there sorry no i said that wrong there is the profession of internal communication and there is the practice of internal communication if that makes sense The, the stuff it actually creates um and what's interesting is um if you think about this if you are a profession what's one of the first things you do particularly if you're a new profession yeah so a good example of this historically is the emergence of, of pharmacy as a profession because pharmacists often will look if you and if you've done any research they were looked down upon in the 19th century they were seen as quacks as you know people just making sometimes poison well medicine don't forget pharmacy used to be called poison so the poisons act of 1905, I think, or 10, regulated fund. Pharma. So pharmacists were actually, they, they, they were seen as a very kind of derogatory, quite a dodgy group. Um, solicitors are a good example of that. If you've ever read any Victorian novels, that's, yes, uh, you know, solicitors were, were kind of seen as con men who, who rose. And what both those groups did is they professionalized to give themselves legitimacy. Yeah, and what was one of the first things they do when they professionalize they wrote a history of themselves and that 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 professional history legitimized the profession both to itself it gave it a sense of who we are where we've come from but it also more importantly legitimized itself to external stakeholders organizations managers the public the media and so forth and what's interesting and that's why, because one of the things you, you've got to realize about this project, which makes it so special, is we've got nine project partners, and these are from major organizations. We've got project partners from, you know, Unilever, John Lewis, um, the post office or the post office museum, Boots, and and all of the professions are supporting us. The Chartered, the Institute of Internal Comms, the Chartered Institute of Personal Development. Uh, charter institute public relations the british library and ab coms so we were really surprised at how much support we got from these groups we didn't expect it but what's interesting particularly for example in, in relation to the institute of internal communications you know whose history goes back to 1949 they were originally the british association of industrial editors i spoke to jennifer sproul she's like she's the the, the ceo of the the of the institute, she's the head of the institute, or the well, her and Suzanne, and she actually spoke to me about what she called the Benjamin Button syndrome, which I thought was amazing. So yeah, I don't know, you know, you, I I had to watch Benjamin Button the film to with Brad Pitt to understand it, but and it's actually quite a good film. It's a bit soppy, but it's actually quite nice. Film. Um, and all all you budding historians out there should watch Benjamin Button. Um. So Benjamin Button is about a person who, as he becomes older, becomes younger. Yeah. So he. he so when he's born, he's this withered old <laughs> little man, and as he gets older, he, he. And in the end, he becomes a baby. It's, it's yeah, it's quite an interesting take on temporality. Um and um, what she was saying, what she meant by that Benjamin Button syndrome is she said, look, as a profession, we we've been around since, whatever the eighteen eighties. We we've been around for nearly hundred and fifty years, but. If you talk to people, they think we're new. They so so what she was saying is as we get older, we become younger. Yeah? <laughs> and I thought it's really interesting, right? Uh and, and what she said was, and, and uh, you know you could almost see the, the exasperation, but also she laughed. It's really interesting. She said, even our members think we're younger. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so even the people who do Intel cons. So what they're hoping we do is actually write a a history of internal comms, which obviously will not just be for them; it will be for historians and other people, but it will be for the profession as well. And I think the idea will be that that by writing this history, it will give the profession a sense of its professional identity and its, its legitimacy. So that's really that's for me. I don't know that's social impact. That is impact. That's where historical research is really relevant to what's going on in the in the in, in the present.
1: And then, yeah, I guess thinking about some of the practicalities of what we'll actually be doing on this project. So what research methods are you going to be uh,
3: using for undertaking
2: the research? Oh, Mick, you can do it because that's Mick's big area. So. <laughs> well, uh,
3: <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is an important question because uh, I think this must be one of the largest um, grants for a historical project under the heading of management from the Economic and Social Research Council. Um, So we had to think very carefully about how to justify our research method. So this is gonna be an archival based piece of research, mainly qualitative, a little bit of quantitative research. Um, So it means the team, me, you, Joe, Michael, visiting company archives, trying to ask the archivists what's the best stuff to look at in the archives to figure out the content of the magazines and the discussions around uh, different forms of communication, what were the best forms of communication. Um, staff surveys are a form of communication, they often ask questions yeah. question yeah. about how do you get your information to try to figure out which are the best forms of communication that the organisation members are, are relying on. Uh, So, yeah, this is a a proudly archival piece of research, I would say. And we will be doing some interviews um, with members of the profession. And included in that will be the archivists, especially in the partner companies, because we think archivists are a really important part of this use of history and communication. Well, we we know that they are. Um, and there are kind of, I think both of these professional groups are under-researched, so it should be fun talking to people who are not regularly being interviewed. Uh, I think there's lots of research done on accountants, which is great, but um, not many people think of talking to the the internal comms or the archivists in organisations.
2: Yeah, and, and we've, you know going back to our earlier project, we, we were both, it was, it was brilliant, you know, to talk to these And to you know, that's when your research is good, when what you're researching, because, you know, often it's, being a historian is quite a lonely thing, isn't
3: it? <laughs> archivists are quite often surprised that we actually want to talk to them rather than about their role, rather than just about how do we get the stuff out of the archive. We will be doing that, but we'll also be asking the archivists about their their role in communication. Because that's yeah. a big part of their job now. I'm sorry, yeah, you
1: said about uh, working with archivists. So I suppose, uh, which archives will you be uh, working at and kind of which sources will yeah.
2: you be looking at? so, so this, this, this goes on. Sorry, yeah, thank you. Um, So this, this goes on. We are looking at 20 archives. But what we've done, and this is a very new strategy. As I said, I've, I've been doing archival research now for nearly 25 years. But what we're doing now is very, very different. We've divided the archives into two types of archives so we have this kind of dual archival strategy and by the way we're going to be we're going to be going into 20 archives 20 archives that's huge yeah um but before i quickly tell you about those archives it's important we we've split those 20 archives into two types of archives And one type of archive is what we call the institutional archives. This ties with our institutional history. So they are the archives of the people. Remember, institutions on one level are the rules of the game, right? They are the embedded structures which determine and regulate, you know, collect social action, collective action, you know, norms of action. You know, as Scott said, of the three pillars, the regulative, the normative and the The cognitive so they regulate what what you should you know what you do what you should do what is normal and even how you see things how you talk about things they operate on a cognitive level as well you know um and what we've said is one group of archives are the are are the rule makers the institutionalists right so they are the professions okay so that's the first type so they will be um the, um, so the institutions that we've seen historically or, or, or the, the, the rule makers of internal communications are the, the Institute of Internal Communication, which before was the British. So this, these are people who go back to 1949. Originally, they were the British Association of Industrial Editors. The Industrial Welfare Society, which is even older, they go back to 1918. Um, and by the 1920s, Industrial Welfare Society is a group of managers who are dedicated to the development of w- industrial welfare human relations and by the 1920s they're they're already talking about internal comms magazines they're, they're even hosting conferences every year uh, uh for for editors of magazines right they are institutionalizing they're creating the rules the structure the legitimation mm-hmm. of that uh so we we've got those two we've got very important is the CIPD the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development So they start developing welfare, but much more for the welfare workers. And they are, even today, they are hugely involved in internal communication in in relation to what's called employee voice and employee engagement, which is seen to derive from internal communication. So we're going to be looking at their archives, and we're going to be looking at the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, because one way of looking at Internal comms as a form of internal PR, so the CIPR were very involved in that. And actually, we're going to be looking at another organisation, AB Comms. And AB Comms are really interesting. The AB Communications are one of Britain's biggest uh agencies for communication and inter- they do other things but internal communication is one of their big things and what's interesting with internal comms of the history is by the 1960s companies begin to outsource their internal communication and actually today if you go into a big organization um most for example royal mail royal mail's internal comms is actually not done by royal mail anymore it's done by ab comms it's been outsourced Yeah, and um ab comms are really interesting i mean they originated in the 1960s so they're one of the big institutional players within internal comms and uh that they have huge clients they they do internal communication for clients like um i think uh hitachi kpmg you know um, royal mail the london underground you know these are one of britain so they we see them as and and they kind of do institutionally things they often they have podcasts casey mccauley she's you know incredible individual within internal comms she does they do workshops they do one day kind of conferences so they're kind of institutionalizing so so we've got that when we call them the rule makers the institutionalists and then on the other side we're going to look at the organizations who use that who embed those institutions so we who, who do the so the people who practice the internal comms and they will be organizations such as uh unilever john lewis Boots, uh, Royal Mail. Uh, we're even looking at the British Army, which will be really interesting. Uh, mm. Shell, the railways, um, um, the Coal Board. Yeah, coal was very, you know obviously one of you know, historically one of Britain's biggest sectors. Who, in particularly in the sixties, really the National Coal Board really took on uh, British Rail. So there's a ton of organisations we're going to be looking at. Um, But as I've said, we're doing that dual structure. So we look at the history of the professions and the institutionalizers, and then we go and look at the history of the archives of the actual organizer, And then we kind of embed the two together. Yeah. And it's interesting how you say, obviously,
1: some of those case studies are organisations that are still today uh, leading the way with internal communication. So uh, what will the project be doing to actually kind of engage with these professionals? What kind of activities will be going on on that side of things?
2: oh that that's we're we're going to be doing a lot actually um and again this is our kind of you know our our social impact you know knowledge exchange knowledge transfer um we're going to be um holding workshops for organizations that want to improve their internal communication and particularly use more history in their internal comms yeah so we'll be almost be like a I wouldn't say consultancy, but we'll be advising and helping, and you know, sharing our knowledge. Um, and we've already been asked to do that by Boots, have asked us to help them with their internal comms. Uh, Unilever have asked us to do it, and the Institute of Internal Comms. So we're really excited about this. You know, yeah. I mean, I, it, it's that kind of the you know what what you could call living history. You know, that the history is still being used, and these organisations are they, they love history. They use history a lot in their communication and they want us to help and also uh mick i mean you because this is real mix here we're going to be working with the archivists so mick can you yeah,
3: yeah well uh, as i as i've said um we're we're really um interested in the archivists as a as a profession. i've I've interviewed archivists in the past and uh it's a really nice experience because as i've said they're not used to people coming to interview them about their work rather than asking them well how can we use your material to look at something else but we're actually looking at the work of archivists and their input into uh, communication in organizations so we hope that we'll be able to as it were disseminate the best practices that that they have amongst themselves and to organize some events so that they can discuss how best to use history in internal communications um yeah it should be a really fun and and we learn interesting stuff along the way you know one of the fascinating things talking to the archivists at Unilever is of course they have a whole collection of artifacts products uh, packaging and um they they're involved with a project for people with dementia because people yeah. often it jogs their memory so uh, it's, it's fascinating the things that we <laughs> we learn from the archivists and uh yeah it's great fun I know it really I, is yeah we, we 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 ended up talking about that because my father had dementia so that's how we, i just mentioned it and uh the archivist at unilever said oh yeah we've got a project on dementia with uh packaging so that's right cause you- Fascinating.
2: It really, because we were talking, weren't we, about how the, the magazines bring back memories. Yes. And then yeah. and then we would say, you know, people, you know, what's amazing. I mean, I know we, we, we it is it is internal comms, but magazines internal comms. What we find amazing, and, and we've heard this from people we've interviewed in the last project, is mm. people keep copies of company magazines yeah, they do, at, yeah. home, at home. Yeah. They bring yeah. it home. And if even when they... They're
3: mentioned in, or oh, they're featured in um, they, Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I think we've seen this already, I think, with the project, with some of the things we've put on the social media so far that uh, people from from outside the project, I guess there's been a couple of things that have got people responding. It's either because they work in the profession or it's to do with nostalgia, uh, reminiscing about some of the things that you found in the magazine.
2: Exactly. And and that's where um, I think what's going to be exciting about this project is because this is now becoming very big in um, org studies and management and organizational history is what's known as OMS organizational memory studies. Yeah. So looking at how, you know, uh, people collectively remember within organizations. And I I think this will be really interesting. It's not one of our major themes questions, but I think we're going to be picking up and running with this because Mm -hmm. it's funny that, you know, when both Mick and I have spoken to family members, friends, I remember I was in a queue. It was during lockdown, and I was queuing up in in Sainsbury's. And uh, you know, you know, during lockdown, people did actually talk a lot more to each other when they got the chance because we were, we were all kind of prisoners in our homes. And I remember chatting to someone, say, "Oh, what?" And I said, "Oh, I'm working on this project." And it, it, we're amazed at how interested people are in this project, who are not academics. They they really and um, this big. You see, often they smile. You're like, "Oh yeah, magazines." You know, I remember that. And, yeah. So. I think that's going to be, and actually, in relation to that, Joe, because in relation to the question you're asking us, we are hoping to hold an exhibition on internal communications. Uh, we're still trying to find someone to. We're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're on the hustle. We're on the scrounge at the moment. So, if anybody out there who wants us to, can lend us their place. Um, but we're looking possibly. Um, Well, whatever, there are several places, but we'd love to do an exhibition uh, and involve our project partners, you know, and bring down like these artifacts that Mick was talking about, you know, the magazines and and we we got, we actually got in touch with, it was so, it was amazing. Remember, we got in touch with the British Army Mm -hmm. and I spoke to a colonel. In the army, who is responsible for the internal? So the army has a magazine called Soldier Magazine, which is actually a big magazine. It's very professional, really. And we actually, he sent us the original letter. Of, yeah. of a captain
3: Absolutely. when That's he
2: nice. it was amazing and he actually wrote yes the, the idea of setting up the magazine first came to me in 1942 when we were in north africa in the desert fighting the germans and it, it was really really in this letter kind of giving you this history yeah. of this one which is still a very important part of the army yeah. soldier yeah. magazine is there so you know th- this is i think people are going to find. we we hope i mean we're targeting this um this project not just at historians by the way it's targeted that you know the profession organizations and the public because yeah. we know that people have a genuine interest in this
0: so that's it for today's podcast thanks again to my guests michael heller and mick Rowlandson for speaking to me today and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the first episode of the History of Internal Communication podcast. Come back again next month to listen to the second episode when we will be speaking to Suzanne Peck and Jen Sproul, the President and Chief Executive of the Institute of Internal Communication. We have lots more guests lined up to join us in future episodes, including internal communication professionals, academics and archivists. In the meantime, check out our website, www.historyofinternalcommons.org where there are lots of blog posts and historical articles to read I look forward to you joining us again next month